thank you so much, uh, Lord, for your goodness to us. Uh, thank you that you are a God who never tires. Uh, we thank you, you're a God of rest, a God of comfort, a God of goodness and kindness and grace. And Lord God, I pray, uh, Lord, as we open up your word this evening, please refresh us. Please point us to Jesus. May your spirit uh, be at work this evening in this place to refresh your people, to convict us of sin, to point us to Jesus, our Savior. Lord, please draw close to us this evening, we ask you, because we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At the age of uh, 22, uh, Jackie Pollinger, she graduated from the Royal College of Music in London as an oboe player. Uh, but she wanted to be um, a missionary. Uh, and so at the age of 22, she approached a number of mission agencies and she got knocked back at every single one. Undeterred, she bought a one-way ticket and she boarded a ship. Uh, and as the ship left London, she was pretty convinced that she was going to go and work in Africa. But Africa passed and she kept praying and asking God to, to lead her to the right place to work. And so she got off the boat in Hong Kong. Uh, she began living in Kowloon, uh, in the wall city there. And she started sharing the gospel in drug dens and amongst triad gang members and in brothels. Uh, later, she established a youth center that helped drug addicts and street sleepers inside the wall city. She's now lived in Hong Kong for the last 50 years. And when I first read Jack Jackie Pollinger's story, I struggled. I was inspired by her life, but I also struggled to try and understand why anybody would ever do that. What would motivate someone to give up so much at such personal cost for people she didn't know, even for people who were difficult to love, when the option just to play it stay safe and stay at home was on the table? Why would anybody do that? And I think these chapters from 1 Kings this evening give us some answers. First, we see in those few verses at the end of chapter 19, we see God's call. At the end of last week's message, we saw God gave Elijah a series of instructions. And one of those instructions was to go and to anoint Elisha as his successor. And so that's exactly what he does. Elijah finds Elisha going through his everyday work. You know, he's plowing his father's field. And we read that Elijah, you know, walks by him. He throws his mantle. He throws his robe over him. Elisha seems to understand what this means. Although it must have felt pretty sudden for him, he leaves his oxen and he runs to follow Elijah. He asks permission to go back to say a proper goodbye to his family. And his reference, you know, to kissing his parents, it may be a sign of just how much he loved his parents. He understands what a call has meant to Elijah. He understands that he may never see his family alive again. And so his request isn't that unreasonable. So Elijah, you know, permits him to go. He returns home. He has a farewell barbecue. And he uses the meat from his team of oxen. 
he uses the wood from the yoke and the plow to make sure that there is no going back for him. He severs his ties to his former calling as a farmer. That part of his life, is that chapter of his life is now closed. The fact that there are 12 teams of oxen on his father's land, it also may show that Elisha, he was probably from a pretty wealthy family. Elisha leaves behind relationships, security, familiarity, comfort, in order to respond to God's call on his life. You know, though Elisha's call is unique, but he is called to be Elijah's successor in a really important time, you know, in God's whole salvation plan. His call is unique. We must recognize, however, that in some ways, the way that God calls Elisha applies to all of us here this evening. See, God is entitled to call us to follow him at any point in our lives, no matter how inconvenient it might be for us, no matter how, might, how, how much it might cost us, God is entitled to call us. I have a missionary friend, and he works in Pakistan, and he, um, he works as an engineer there. He's a Christian working as an engineer. But every day when he's going to work, he has to check under his car for bombs. And he told me about the struggle that he faces when he's sharing the gospel with a Pakistani. Because he knows that if he shares the gospel with a Pakistani and a Pakistani puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they too may also face death threats. They also could die for their faith. They'll be kicked out of home. He knows the cost of what it might mean for someone, a Pakistani, to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He understands that. But he also knows that God is entitled to call upon people to count the cost, to call upon people even though it's inconvenient for them. Because that who is who God is, and that is the nature of the call that he has on people's lives. No matter how inconvenient, no matter how costly it is. And as we read this story, I think lots of us here this evening, you know, we immediately go to Luke chapter 9. There, Jesus, you know, he calls someone. Someone says to Jesus, sorry, comes to Jesus and says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those in my house. And in light of today's passage, you know, this might seem a reasonable thing to do. We expect Jesus to reply the same way that Elijah did, you know, with an affirmative. But instead, Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I mean, surely Jesus here is making some kind of reference to Elisha. But is Elijah being soft on Elisha? Oh, sorry, is Elisha, sorry, is he being soft on Elisha? Is Jesus being too harsh? You know, this person is the first in a line of three, oh, sorry, is the last in a line of three people. The first person comes to Jesus, they take the initiative, and they say, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, well, if you want to follow me, well, guess what? On earth, basically, I'm homeless. I'm heading to Jerusalem to die. So if you're going to follow me, please come and follow me. But notice the response. There isn't any response. The man just disappears. Hearing those words from Jesus, 
He takes the initiative, comes to Jesus. I'll follow you, Jesus. Jesus tells him about what it will mean to follow him, and the man just disappears. Jesus takes the initiative, and he asks a second person as he's traveling to Jerusalem to follow him. But this time, the person gives a a lame excuse. It's more than likely that, that this man's father is still alive, and the man will only start following Jesus once his father has died. And in Jesus' response, he's saying that there is something more important in life than just passing our days. There's something more important in our life than just passing time, than just preserving our time on earth. What is more important than that? Well, it's the most important thing is spreading the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice the the last person, again, the last person is the one who comes. They take the initiative. They come to Jesus. And he vows, vows to follow Jesus, you know, wherever he goes. Jesus has set his face for Jerusalem. He has no time to wait for this man to decide whether Jesus is really worth following or not. I mean, surely if he was really serious about following Jesus, and if he's taking the initiative to come to Jesus, surely he would go and he would farewell his parents, and then he would follow him. You know, you cannot plow a field in a straight line if you're constantly looking back. Jesus knows the man's heart. He knows that offer to follow Jesus. He knows it isn't genuine. He knows it isn't real. And I think the point is clear in both narratives. I think the point is, is that Jesus is entitled to our unconditional obedience. And he asks us at times to leave behind relationships, to leave behind security, to leave behind familiarity and comfort in order to follow him. When I worked in my old job, I worked for the Church Missionary Society and part of my job was I traveled all over Queensland and Northern New South Wales. Um, and as part of that, I'd, I'd visit churches, and sometimes I'd do this exercise with churches. I'd, I'd give them some questions, and I'd say, just imagine uh, you're going off on mission. You know, think about Luke and Charlie, and they're going off uh, next year. Imagine that you're going off on mission with them. And as you're going, I want you to think about some of these questions. How do you intend to spend your time? What are you going to pray for? How are you going to make new friends? And once you make friends, how do you plan to spend time together? What kind of budget are you hoping to live on? Now, if I gave you those questions this evening, what kind of answers might you give? You know, we'd be here this morning, we're pretty creative this evening, and we're kind of just working on that, yeah, yeah. And and maybe some of the answers might be, you know, well, I'm gonna gonna build relationships with the time that I have, you know. What are you gonna pray? We're gonna pray for opportunities to share the gospel. You know, how are you gonna make new friends? You know, I'm gonna meet them where they are, and I'm gonna meet them over to my place and hang out with them. What kind of budget are you hoping for? The classic one, everybody always says basic food and shelter. That's all very well, but how come we take that measure and we apply it to missionaries who are going overseas and we don't apply the same rule to ourselves? Do we actually think that they're calling, you know, the basic food and shelter? You know, we can, uh, when I was living in Japan and I um, got married and I was going, a friend of mine paid for me to go to Hawaii. Um, to go to Hawaii, going from Japan, is like going to the Gold Coast for a holiday. I mean, it's, everybody in Japan goes to Hawaii for their honeymoon. It's cheap, cheapest place to go. Somebody paid for it. Someone still contacted me and said, how dare you, as a missionary, go to Hawaii for your honeymoon? 
How dare you do that? They were kind of like taking this measure and they were applying it to me, but they weren't prepared to apply the same measure to themselves. Why do we do that? And we expect them to live simply and sacrificially as though their calling is different from ours. But is it? In some ways, it is. But in so many other ways, it's not. Second point this evening, knowing God's grace. Chapter 20, you know, Samaria is under attack from these Arameans. Things are desperate. King Ahab is initially willing to agree to be subject to the king of Aram, um, this guy called Ben-Hadad. But when Ben-Hadad makes further demands, Ahab changes his mind, and so the Arameans, they begin to besiege the city. Ben-Hadad's confidence suggests that, well, he has the upper hand. But then in verse 13, we read that God sends a prophet to Ahab and tells him how to win the battle. Ahab listens and does what the prophet says. Ben-Hadad's confidence seems to turn to overconfidence, so much so that he doesn't really take the battle seriously. So the battle goes just as the prophet had said, and Arameans, they are defeated. But the war is not over, as the prophet says that their enemies are going to come back the following year to attack, and warns Ahab and tells him to get ready. Ben-Hadad's advisors, they strike up a new plan of attack. It's the same army, but just it's a different location. The military intelligence has told them that Israel's gods can't fight on flat land. They're the gods of the mountain, so they choose to fight God's army on flat land, on the plains. The two armies, they square up for battle. The odds are stacked against Israel. Um, in verse 27, we have that little description. Uh, the Israelites mobilized, they gathered supplies, they went to fight them. The Israelites camped in front of them like two little flocks of goats. While the Arameans, you know, they filled the landscape. But again, God makes sure that Israel wins a great victory. And in the midst of defeat, we then hear that the Aramean king, Ben-Hadad, survives the loss and he sends his servants to beg for mercy. And Ahab, you know, he receives Ben-Hadad. Whenever he receives him, we read that he receives him like a brother. And he makes a deal with him. You know what? What's striking in these verses, and, and you probably picked it up this evening, is what, what is God doing? Why does God have anything to do with Ahab? When we think about the last couple of weeks, the kind of king he is, the kind of person he is, the way that Ahab treats God, the way that he treats his prophet. What is God doing in these verses? Because God seems to, despite what he's doing, he's offering his grace to Ahab. Despite how twisted he is, despite how ungodly he is, God incredibly still offers him his grace. God is the one who seeks out Ahab. He still speaks to Ahab through the prophets. He even warns Ahab about the, uh, the battle, the army, that's gonna, what's going to happen in the following year. He gives him a heads up. There's no indication that Ahab even heeded that advice because he seems to be unprepared for the attack the following year. Ahab never asks for help. It's purely an undeserved gift from God. And it's shocking. 
as it comes to someone who, who couldn't be further away from God. But as grace comes to Ahab and to Israel, they are not to be indifferent to it. They are to respond. And you can see what the response that God is looking for in verses 13 and verses 28. There, you know, he, he speaks, uh, to the prophet speaks to King Ahab and says, this is what the Lord says, do you see this whole army? Watch, I am handing it over you to you today so that you may know that I am the Lord. Verse 28, for whenever the second battle happens, he says, this is what the Lord says, because the Arameans have said, the Lord is a God of the mountains and not a God of the valleys. I will hand over all this whole army to you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. That you, in verse 13, it's singular. You, Ahab, will know that I am the Lord. In verse 28, it's plural, meaning you, Ahab, and Israel will know that I am the Lord. And the, the idea, kind of, is not that Ahab and Israel, you know, they, they will know facts about God. It's not that they will know that, that God is the one true God, because that is something that they already know. That's a lesson that they've already learned on Mount Carmel. The idea is rather that when they see God, when they see God act with unsolicited grace, they're expected to respond accordingly. You see, Elisha knew God. He recognized God's work in his life. He recognized God's hand in his life, and he responded by giving up everything to follow him. That's the point of the last part of the chapter, as, as Ahab still doesn't know God. In verse 35, a prophet orders another prophet to strike him. And he makes sure that the other prophet knows that it isn't just some kind of a wacky idea that he has because he says it's by the word of the Lord. And the other prophet refuses to listen to the word of the Lord and therefore he faces judgment. And that judgment comes again, um, you know, from, do you remember chapter 13, the lion, the kind of way devoured the other, the other prophet again, it's the lion again that brings God's judgment. And you know, these, these, these verses, you know, they, they seem a little bit, quirky in some ways, but we must not miss the point. The point is that it's not safe to ignore the word of God. The prophet who rejects the word of the Lord and the judgment that must follow that, it's a picture of how Ahab has been responding to God, and it's a warning of what is going to happen next. The prophet, you know, he finds another man, and this time he, li he listens to the word of God, and he strikes the prophet. The prophet then, he disguises himself, he puts a, a bandage over his eye, and then he waits in the road, and he approaches the king while he's walking along the road, and he tells the king that he's a soldier who's come from the battle. He told him, tells him how he was given the job to look after a prisoner, he was warned of the consequences of not doing his job. He's got a bit distracted, and the prisoner has escaped. And the king, you know, he himself, you know, he passes judgment. He says that this man, you know, you should face judgment for being so careless, for being so lazy. It's a no-brainer. But Ahab doesn't realize that by his own words, he has judged himself. See, off comes the disguise, and the king's heart sinks. 
Ahab is the servant who was busy here and there. He was the one who acted out of his own interest, and he never took God's word seriously. Therefore, he will face the judgment of God. And notice his response. He he doesn't walk away sad or penitent. Rather, he walks away angry and resentful. That's his response to the grace of God. You know, in our Australian culture today, and even within our church culture, you know, we, we struggle with these chapters. I mean, what right does God have to call me and expect me to be put out for him? to face, to make sacrifices or to, to face discomfort from what right has God got to do that? And what, what right has God got to, to call me to unconditional obedience, to discomfort, to sacrifice? And why is it such a big deal to feel to respond appropriately to God's word, to God's grace? And why does rejecting God's word, why does it bring God's judgment. I mean, how can this be right? I think chapter 21 will give us some answers because there we see an innocent man who is condemned. We read that sometimes passes, but we find Ahab hasn't changed. He asks for his neighbor's vineyard and he wants to turn the vineyard into a veggie patch, but his neighbor Naboth refuses. Naboth says, you know, as the Lord is my witness, I will never give my ancestors inheritance to you. Naboth is a godly man. His refusal is based upon passages in Leviticus, which tell the Israelites that they must not sell their land permanently to others. Notice Ahab's response. He, He went away again, resentful and angry. You know, it's the same response to the prophet's words. Ahab sees Naboth's words as a further sign of God's judgment. As Naboth's faithfulness highlights Ahab's sin, it highlights his flaws. And as Ahab, the king, he sulks, his wife Jezebel, she acts in Ahab's name. She hatches a plot to kill Naboth. So she sends a letter to the elders and nobles who lived with Naboth in his city, and she said this, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people, then seat two wicked men opposite him and have them testify against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. Leaders of the city, they do exactly as the queen requests. Naboth is falsely accused. He's taken outside the city where he's stoned to death. Naboth, the faithful one, is murdered. And Ahab gets his vineyard. Everything seems to go according to plan. You know, but as we read the story about Naboth, you know, we can't help but think about the Lord Jesus. In Matthew chapter 26, The religious leaders, the political leaders, they're looking for false evidence against Jesus to try and put him to death. But they can't find any because nothing would stick. But then we read, finally, two witnesses 
also come forward and they declare, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. At last, they have something to pin on Jesus. And he, though he is innocent like Naboth, is sentenced to death by the testimony of two witnesses. He, like the prophet, you know, in chapter 20, is wounded according to the word of God. He's also taken outside of the city and he's not stoned to death, but rather he is cruelly crucified. Jesus is crushed on the cross for our sin. We are the ones that are killing him because it is our sin that necessitates his death. You see, without his dying for me, for my sin, I face the same kind of judgment as Ahab, we all do. But on the cross, Jesus takes on himself the punishment that we deserve. He faces hell for us. Jesus faces hell for you. The judgment that we should face for not taking God seriously, for hurting others, for scorning his grace and kindness to us. Well, that's meted out on Jesus instead of us. He dies the death that we should die. And even someone as rich as Elon Musk would never have enough wealth to be able to pay back Jesus for saving him from God's righteous judgment. No sum of good living could ever ransom us from God's judgment. The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is our sin. And if Jesus has done, if he has done that, if Jesus has done that for you this evening, if he's done that for every human being that has ever lived, if Jesus has faced the full wrath of God's anger towards your sin for everyone, then how vile, how repugnant, how deplorable, how deplorable it is to be so intentionally ignorant or indifferent or unresponsive to what God has generously done for us in Christ. And how dishonoring is it to God to say that we know God and yet we live as though Jesus means very little to us. If Jesus has taken the punishment that we know that we deserve, then he has the right to ask anything from us. He has the right to ask us for anything. And in our story this evening, the, the murderers, they seem to have gotten away with murder. And everyone seems to just move on. Everyone except God. And God confronts Ahab again through Elijah. And he does that, you know, at Naboth's vineyard. God now intervenes to bring justice for Naboth. Ahab, Jezebel, and their descendants, they will face the full wrath of God's judgment for all the evil that they have done. Whenever Ahab, he hears Elijah's words, he, you know, he tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, 
he fasts. You know, all of these are, are marks of repentance. You know, we so cynically question whether you know, it's real or not. Is this genuine or not? But incredibly, once again, God offers Ahab his grace. Notice how quickly he does that. He steps in and he offers him his grace by not bringing disaster on him in his lifetime. Quickly, he offers him grace and mercy. God has provided everything for you to know him. You know, though the, the clouds of, of God's eternal judgment it, it hangs over our heads, God has parted that cloud with his love. He has shone his grace into our lives through the death and resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what we have done, God has the power to forgive you. He has the power to restore you. He has the power to give you a new life. No matter how many times that you have failed him, God is here, Jesus is here, offering you his grace and his mercy, his forgiveness and his love. He is quick to come to you this evening, offering you his mercy, his grace. Knowing your sin has been judged in Jesus, it should impact the way that we live our lives. It should completely transform our lives. It should transform how we are living our lives this week. But how are you going to respond? How are you responding to the grace that God has poured into us in the Lord Jesus? Let's pray right now. If you were here this evening, you still do not know the Lord Jesus. You've heard his call on your life many times. And yet you still haven't taken that step to come to him and say, God, please forgive me. Please make me yours. If you're here this evening, I want to implore you this evening, please don't wait. Right now, come to the Lord Jesus. He's merciful. He is good. Confess your sin to him. Ask him to come into your life. Please do that this evening before it's too late. There may be some others here this evening where you, you know you have failed Jesus again and you question whether he will ever forgive you and I want to encourage you, if that's you this evening, please come to him. He is merciful, he is good. There may be others here this evening that just you hear God's call in your life. He's called you to follow him. And you know that there are times when he's calling you and asking you to, to step out. Or he's asking you. And you know that there's sacrifice involved. That there's discomfort involved. There's a cost involved. Just please talk to him this evening. Please bring those concerns that you have to him. And ask him to, in response to what he has done for us in Christ. What he has done for dying for our sin, for facing that judgment that we all deserve. Just talk to him about ways in which we can respond to that this evening. Just spend a few moments wherever we are, wherever we are before God, just bringing our lives to him. 
Heavenly Father, we just pray for each of us this evening. We pray that we might know you. We pray that that knowledge will not just be information about who you are, but it will be knowledge that is transformative. Knowledge that shapes us and molds us as we receive your mercy, as we receive your grace, as we receive your love. Lord, please change us. Lord, help us to know how the Lord Jesus has taken, Lord God, the punishment that we all deserve. How he has faced your judgment, your righteous judgment towards sin and how he has taken that into himself, how he has faced that for us. And Lord, I pray, Lord, in light of your grace, Lord, please teach us to live for you because we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.